You are listening to the weekly podcast of Fellowship Paragold, a church committed to making the real Jesus known to every man, woman, and child. For more information about our church, please visit us at www.fellowshipparagold.com. Um, but uh, it is good to be here with you this morning. If you have a Bible, go ahead and grab it and uh, turn with me to Nehemiah chapter 2. And as you're turning there, um, let me just kind of orient us as to where we are and where we're going. Um, this is week two in a series that we have titled Holy Ambition. And in this series, we are just walking through the book of Nehemiah and discovering together how to move from the ruin of selfish ambition into the revival that holy ambition brings. And so with that, we're going to take a a little snapshot of Nehemiah's life here in chapter 2, verses 1 through 10. If you'll look uh, at that text with me, chapter 2 of Nehemiah, we'll start in verse 1, we'll read through verse 10. And if you don't have a Bible, you can follow along on the screen with us. Um, Here's what Nehemiah says, writing in the first person. He says, In the month of Nisan, in the twentieth year of King Artaxerxes, when wine was before him, I took up the wine and gave it to the king. Now I had not been sad in his presence, and the king said to me, Why is your face sad, seeing that you are not sick? This is nothing but sadness of heart. And then I was very much afraid. I said to the king, Let the king live forever. Why should my face not be sad when the city... Um, uh, the place of my father's graves lies in ruins and its gates have been destroyed by fire. Um, then the king said to me, what is it that you're requesting? And so I stopped and prayed to the God of heaven. Verse five. And I said to the king, if it pleases the king and if your servant has found favor in your sight, um, that you send me to Judah, to the city of my father's graves, that I may rebuild it. Verse six. And the king said to me, the queen sitting beside him, How long will you be gone, and when will you return? And so it pleased the king to send me when I had given him a time. And I said to the king, If it pleases the king, let letters be given me to the governors of the, prince, uh, of the province beyond the river, um, that they may let me pass through until I come to Judah. And a letter to Asaph, the keeper of the king's forests, that he may give me timber to make beams for the gates of the forest of the temple, or fortress of the temple, um, and for the wall of the city, and for the house that I shall occupy. And the king granted me what I asked, for the good hand of my God was upon me. And then I came to the governors of the province beyond the river and gave them the king's letters. Now the king had sent with me officers of the army and horsemen, But when Sanballat the Horonite and Tobiah the Ammonite servant heard this, it displeased them greatly that someone had come to seek the welfare of the people of Israel. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray together one more time. Would you pray with me? Um, Father, I do thank you for your word, um, that it's true, that it's pure, um, that it is as sweet as honey. My only uh, request is that you would help me to take it and consume it myself this morning and that you would help us to take it and consume what you have for us. Um, I'm I'm aware that uh, you brought all of us, every man, woman, and child into this space, not to be entertained, but but to just uh, bring us to a place where we see Jesus for who he is and we are reoriented around him. And for some of us that we would trust and surrender our lives to him for the very first time. Um, that we would, for others, uh, step into the light and walk into the light and be transformed 
uh, by your grace and your love. This is, this is the work you want to do in us. And I'm aware, God, I'm confessing uh, this thing in me that often uh, keeps me from that, this kind of self-protecting fear uh, and this mistrust. And I just pray, God, you would shatter that in me and shatter that in us this morning, uh, tear down the walls that we have built um, that you can truly rebuild us into the men and women we were created to be. And I pray that you would do it for your glory um, and for our joy as we get to participate in it. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, on October 28th, 2015, I was sitting in my truck outside my friend's house in Kansas City, and I was about to go inside and watch the Royals play the Mets in Game 2 of the World Series. And as I reached for my door handle to get out of my truck, this call comes across my phone, and I look down and I see that it's my good old um, childhood friend from Arkansas, Jared Pickney. And so I answered the phone and I said, hey, Jared, you know, like what's going on? And we chit chat for a few minutes. And then he says, um, hey, you know, we're sending Rusty out to plant this church in Cleveland, Tennessee. And as Luke and I have kind of been talking and praying about our next hire, um, I just wanted to call you and see if maybe you're possibly interested in that opportunity. And uh, the moment I heard that, two competing things happened within me. Um, the first thing that happened in me was this, this thing in my heart leapt for the opportunity. Um, for starters, this is the place where my wife and I grew up. We love this place. We love this city. Um, we had already been praying for uh, Jared and Luke and for the MC leaders and for you guys. Um, I can honestly say for years since this church was planted, we were already praying and, and kind of uh, watching from a distance what God was doing here. And so the moment I heard Jared say that, I felt this, this tug and this longing to come and be a part of this. But the second thing that happened in me was this thing that said, you're crazy. Like, you can't do that. You, can't, you cannot uproot your life after being in a place for 10 years where you've kind of become an adult, um, and you've got a career, and you've got a life here, and you've got kids here, and you cannot uproot um, and go back home. It's too risky. You can't go back to that place. Don't, don't you remember all the trouble you caused there whenever you were a kid? Like, there's no way people are going to take you serious. Like, that's why you left in the first place. You can't, you can't, it's too risky. And, and what happened was, just in a matter of nanoseconds, that second thought began to overwhelm my desire for this place and for you. And so I actually said to Jared on the phone, man, I am humbled, I am honored that you would ask uh, me to even consider that. I know you're not offering me a job, you're just asking me to consider, uh, but I, I, I'm going to have to say no. Like, I can't, I can't, it's not the right time. I gave all kinds of stupid excuses. Um, and, and then I hung up the phone and went and pretended like everything was fine and watched the baseball game. What happened from there was for the next couple of months, my wife and I talked about this and processed. We didn't share it with anybody. We didn't talk to our family about it. Um, but we had this growing desire in us to move back home. And so, um, you know, fast forward to around the holidays, 2015, Jared calls me again. I don't know if you remember saying this, but... He said, um, hey, man, we've had several applicants. Uh, I'm just, we're just kind of waiting for you to get on the same page with God and realize that you're supposed to be in Paragold. Um, and then he laid it on pretty thick. He was like, you're about to have your third kid. You've got all this family here that could help you. Like, um, you, you know, I think it's time for you to move home. Um, and so, again, I felt these two competing realities in my heart. And so this time, I told Jared, I said, you know, let me pray about it for two weeks and I'll call you back, which is Christianese for no, right? <laughs> let me pray about it for two weeks and I'll call you back. And, and, and I did pray about it for two weeks, and to my shame, I did not call him back. 
which I have since apologized for. He has graciously forgiven me like a good friend. Um, I, I, I didn't call back. And the reason I didn't call back was because as this ambition and this desire for Perigal would grow, the more this other thing would grow that says you can't do that. It's too risky. Fast forward several months later, two years ago, in April of 2016, I was sitting with Richard Plass in Louisville, Kentucky. Many of you have heard us talk about Rich. Um, and like some kind of ninja prophet, Rich looks at me across the table and says, I get the sense that you have another opportunity on the table. He says, he says like, is, is, is it possible that you have another opportunity on the table where maybe God is calling you to go and be a part of something else? And I said, well, there's this one opportunity um, to go back to a city that we love to partner with one of my best friends that I trust to help lead a church that he planted that I love that's gospel center that lines up perfectly with my theology and philosophy of ministry but I'm just not really sure I should do that. <laughs> and without missing a beat the very next thing Rich said is he looked at me across the table and he said what are you so afraid of? It's clear that you want to do this. What is it that you're so afraid of? And that was the moment where I realized for the first time that this thing that had been growing in me and competing with my holy ambition for you, for this city, for this place, for what God was calling me to do, this thing that had been growing in me is something called fear. And so we began to process this. Okay, what are you afraid of? Well, I'm afraid of failure. I'm afraid if I move down there, what if I move down there and it doesn't work out? Like, what if I uproot my family and I do this and I'm not the right fit? What if I fail? I've, I've feared rejection, right? Like, what if I move down and I'm not the kind of leader they follow? Like, what if, I, what if they don't accept me? I feared facing my past. Like, if I go back to that place, what kind of wounds am I going to have to deal with? And not just wounds that were inflicted upon me, but wounds that I've inflicted on other people. Like, what, what am I going to have to face if I go back to that place, this is the things I'm afraid of. And then Rich looked at me and he said something I hope I'll never forget. And I say this because it is the big idea that I want to put forward and have us wrestle with this morning. Uh, Rich looked at me and he said, Adam, it's not fear. It's not your fear that will keep you from fulfilling the dreams and the desires God has put in your heart. It's your unwillingness to face your fear. It's not your fear that will keep you from fulfilling the dreams and the desires God's put in your heart. It's your unwillingness to face your fear. And it was like five minutes after that that I texted Jared, no joke, and said, dude, we need to talk. We need to talk. I don't know if you have a job for me or not, but we're moving home because like, we've got to come be a part of this. This is what God is calling us to do. And by the way, we, we came in August of 2016, and being with you all has been one of the greatest gifts my family has ever received. So thank you for that. Um, and so the reason I share this with you, here's my point. The reason I share that story with you is because there are two things uh, that are true for every single person in this room and every single person in this city and every single person on this planet. The first thing that's true is God has put in each one of you a desire to make your life count, which we talked about last week, a desire to live for something bigger than yourself. You have dreams, you have passions, you have gifts. Some of you just haven't tapped into that yet, but it's there. God has put that in you, and he wants to use that for his holy purposes. The second thing, however, what is also true, is the moment you do actually start living for something bigger than yourself, 
and living into the ambition and the desires that God has for you is the moment where you're going to have to step out of your comfort zone. You're going to have to let go of your illusion for control, and and you're going to have to take some risks. It's going to require you to take some risks. To fulfill the ambition God has put in you will require you to take some risks. And the moment you do that is the moment you're going to experience this thing called fear. I don't think I'm the only one in the room who's acquainted with that, by the way, with fear. Um, In his book, Running Scared, theologian and psychologist Ed Welch says that by nature, human beings are fear specialists. Like we are experts at being afraid. That's because all of us are born with an innate sense that we know we live in a world that's not safe. A place where bad things happen, where things are not the way they're supposed to be. And so um, fear is innate in us. I mean, you have to risk your life just to live here. And so fear is innate in us. That's why nobody has to teach a child how to be afraid. They're just, you know, more honest about it than adults are. And adults are scared too. We're just more sophisticated um, at hiding it and better at dealing, uh, dodging our fears rather than dealing with them and facing them. But again, here's, here's the thing I want us to wrestle with. It's not fear itself that's going to keep you from experiencing the life you were made to experience and from living into the ambition that God has for you. It will be your unwillingness to face your fear. What Nehemiah wants us to see is if we're going to be a people who experience the life we're made for, if we're going to be a people who are marked by holy ambition, we have to be a people who are willing to meet God in the face of fear. It's the only way to do this in a fallen world. And so that's where we pick up the story. Um, Look with me uh, at Nehemiah chapter 2, back at the text, at verse 1. And let's just kind of walk through this together and put ourselves in Nehemiah's shoes, okay? Here's what he says in chapter 2, verse 1. He says, "Um, In the month of Nisan, in the 20th year of King Artaxerxes, when wine was before him, I took up the wine and gave it to the king. And I had not been sad, notice that, I had not been sad in his presence. And then the king looks at me and he says, Why are you sad? Okay, Um, Nehemiah is standing before the king and he's sad. And in order for us to kind of move forward and understand this, we need to to get into the context and rewind just a little bit and remember why he's sad. Okay, so we talked last week in chapter 1 about how Nehemiah is this Jewish dude who's working for the king of Persia. And the reason why he's there is because about 70-something years before this, um, most of the southern king of Judah was sacked And everybody was carried off into exile because of their disobedience to God. And so now Nehemiah finds himself in this place where God has positioned him, where he's working for um, the now king of Persia, this guy named Artaxerxes. And we saw in chapter 1 last week that Nehemiah receives report that uh, many of these exiles have since gone back home to Jerusalem. But he hears that things are still far from good. Things are bad. The city still lies in ruins. Everything is burned to the ground. There's no temple, which means there's no physical representation of of God's presence. There's no king on David's throne, which means the promise of a Messiah is like up in the air. Is this going to happen or not? There's no walls, which means the Israelites are just sitting ducks. Like anybody can come over the hills of Jerusalem and attack them at any moment. And so Nehemiah hears this, and because he's human and he has a heart that works... The moment he hears this, he he falls down, we saw in chapter 1, and he weeps and he prays and he fasts for days. 
And as he does this, God begins to cultivate in Nehemiah this holy ambition. You know, it's in one of these moments where he's like, God, somebody's got to do something about this. Who are you going to raise up to do something about this? Somebody's got to fix this. You ever see a problem in the world that's broken and you're like, somebody's got to do something about that? Well, the moment you start praying about it, God may say like, yeah, you're going to do something about that. I'm putting that in your heart. That's that's, that's That's your burden I'm giving you. Nehemiah starts to realize this. And he has this holy ambition to go back to his hometown and to lead this effort in rebuilding and restoring this city. There's only one small problem standing in his way of fulfilling his ambition. Nehemiah works for the king of Persia, remember? So he can't just quit his job and go home. He knows that in order for him to do this, he's going to have to first go and get permission from the king. So now we find him, right, standing before the king, and he's visibly heartbroken. Like he's passionate. These are his burdens. This is, his heart is on his sleeve in this moment. And he says to the king in verse, uh, or the king looks at him, you know, can, can kind of see that he's visibly shaken. And the king poses this question. Dude, why are you sad? Like I can see that you're not sick, so you've got some kind of broken heart. Why are you sad? And look at what Nehemiah says in his honesty. He says, then, when the king asked me that, then I was very much afraid. Not a little bit afraid. He says, I was very much afraid. Like this is Hebrew for I need to change my toga afraid. Like, right, like you picking this up? Like, I am scared to death, Nehemiah says, standing before this king. And of course, the question we have to ask is, same question Rich asked me. Like, what is he so afraid of? And this is where, again, you got to kind of step inside their world a little bit. In order to understand this, in the ancient Near Eastern world, it was considered very disrespectful not uh, to be anything but happy in the presence of the king. To the point that it was actually illegal to be anything but happy in the presence of the king. So can you imagine like working for a dude like that or being his friend? Like you're not allowed to be anything but happy in the presence of the king. So if you're part of the royal entourage like Nehemiah, your whole goal in life is to make this dude happy. You keep the wine flowing. You keep the you know, bread coming. You keep the entertainment, the singing and the dancing. You do whatever you can to make sure this guy's having a good day. It doesn't matter what kind of day you're having because the world doesn't revolve around you. It's all about the king, right? So Nehemiah knows very well, and this kind of stuff is well recorded throughout human history. It happened all the time. All the king's got to do is be in a little bit of a bad mood, right? He's got all the power and authority in the world to look at Nehemiah and say, wait a minute, nobody comes into my presence in a bad mood. Kill him and get me a new cupbearer. Like, I'm not having this. So Nehemiah, in his honesty and in his humanity, says, I'm terrified right now. Anybody else in this room feel that way? I'm terrified right now. Yes, all of you feel that way. You just don't know it. I'm terrified right now. By the way, I just think this is just interesting. I mean, just appease me. I think this is, you see this kind of stuff kind of hidden in the text, and I love it. Um, You saw in chapter 1, verse 1, that this thing kicks off in the month of Kislev, which would be around December. And now in chapter 2, verse 1, you see that it's the month of Nisan, which would be around April, like right now. So that means that for four months, Nehemiah has been hiding his sadness from the king because he's scared to lose his life. For four months, he's been weeping behind the scenes, weeping, praying, and fasting about this holy ambition God has put in his heart. And you want to know why he goes before the king? To risk his life because he can't stand it anymore. 
Like he's waited long enough. He's got to do this. He's passionate about this. If he's going to move forward with the desires God's put in his heart, he's ready to risk his life to go before the king. And so he says in the first person, as he's telling the story, I went before the king to tell him my broken heart and my burdens that I have for my people, knowing full well he might kill me. And oh, by the way, I was scared to death to do that. That was not easy. Here's the point I want us to see. It's what Nehemiah is trying to help us see. In order for Nehemiah to fulfill the dreams and ambition God has put in his heart, he had to face his fears. He's not getting to Jerusalem without going before that king. So if he's going to do this, he's going to have to face his fears, and the same will be true for you and me. same will be true for you and me. Now, thankfully, I'm very thankful that in our culture, we're probably not going to risk our physical lives like Nehemiah. But for some of you, God is calling you right now to risk failure. Like, he's putting burdens in you and putting a calling on you that's going to ask you to do something that's outside of your control and outside of your comfort zone. You know, some of you know right now what I'm talking about. And he's putting that on you. And and he's going to call you to step into something where maybe you're not qualified. Maybe you don't have all the answers. and, and, And you might fail. I mean, believe it or not, that happens in a fallen world. You might fail. And that's risky. That's scary if you're human. If you're a robot, it's not scary at all. But if you're human, that's scary, right? Um, Maybe he's asking you to risk rejection and ridicule. Like maybe he's putting desires in your heart and you know if you pursue that, people are going to say, you're crazy, dude. Like you're stupid. You shouldn't do that. And by the way, um, if enough people say that to you, you should probably listen to that. Um, that's God gave us community for a reason. So I'm not saying you don't listen to that, but I'm saying that some of you, Jesus faced that. You're crazy. You're going to the, I don't care what your ambition is. You're not going to the cross. That's ludicrous. Nobody does that. I'm not going to let you do that. So maybe it's rejection or ridicule. Maybe it's your reputation. Um, maybe your passion is going to require you to risk some financial security or to leave a place that's comfortable and familiar to you and go and do something else. I had a conversation this week with um, Andy Runyon, who's one of our members, um, and we talked about how recently he switched jobs because of this other opportunity that created more space for him to pursue the passions God had given him. And so he, he left this job where he was killing it, like so much and so that they, when they heard he was being offered this other job, they offered him a raise and a promotion to keep him. But Andy left what was comfortable to him, and he left his current job to go and do this other thing because it allowed him to spend more time with his family, more time serving in his missional community, and more time investing in fellowship kids, which is all things that he is passionate about. And so as we sat there and talked over lunch, we talked about how, man, this was scary for him. And now he's in a position where he has to pass this comprehensive exam, which he only has room to miss two points for on, or else he doesn't have the job. And he's already left his other job right, to go and do this one. So pray for Andy. Like if there's it, if you want to know a way to apply this sermon immediately, you can pray for him, right? Um, and so he's, 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 in order to pursue these passions and his dreams, he's done something that's put him in a position that's very scary. Like he's taking some risks. And you know what that is? I'm going to brag on you, Andy, the way your dad used to brag on me when I played for him in high school, um, uh, which is not true. Um, <laughs> but here's, here's what that is. That's courage. And, and what Nehemiah wants us to see is that when God births a holy ambition in you, it will require courage. It will ask of you courage. 
And, and we really need to understand this because we have some misconceptions about courage in our culture. We think that to be courageous means you're big and tough and you're not scared of anything. But courage is not the absence of fear. Courage is moving forward in the face of fear. Or to quote the great theologian John Wayne, who once said, Courage is being scared to death but sidling up anyway. That's Nehemiah right now. He's scared to death right here in front of the king. He's saddling up anyway. Because you know what? God's put a holy ambition in his heart. He's willing to risk his everything. He's going to risk everything in order to pursue it. He's scared to death. He's saddling up every way, uh, anyway. That's courage. And if we're going to be a people marked by holy ambition, if you're going to step out into this adventure God is calling you on to follow him into your dreams and passions... You're going to have to be a person. We're going to have to be a people um, who learn how to be courageous in the face of fear. The problem is that most of us, I want you to listen to this, because I'm choosing my words carefully here. The problem is that most of us cheat ourselves out of learning to be courageous because we won't allow ourselves to be afraid. Did you catch that? The problem is that most of us are cheating ourselves out of learning to be courageous because we won't allow ourselves to be afraid. We shame ourselves for being afraid. In fact, I have, I'm a six on the Enneagram. Anybody else a six in here? For those of you who don't know what the Enneagram is, we can talk later. Sixes are scared to death. That's just how they live their life. The essence of daily life is downright scary for a six. Everything could go wrong and we know it. Like we're in tune with that. Um, And so I'm afraid. I've been afraid most of my life. Um, and for most of my adult life, I've called myself names for being afraid that I can't repeat up here. So I, am, I have shamed myself for being afraid. And that's because in our culture, we have bought into this lie that if you are a follower of Jesus, you should somehow be impervious to fear. Or, or worse, I think, fear is somehow sinful or wrong. Like it's wrong to be afraid. I love this quote from Chip Ingram. Chip Ingram says, it's okay to be afraid. It's just not okay to be afraid and disobedient. Right? It's okay to be afraid. There's nothing wrong with fear. It's normal and natural in a fallen world. It's okay to be afraid. It's just not okay to be afraid and disobedient. In other words, it's not okay to be a coward and to refuse to obey God when he asks you to take a risk. And it's in those moments when you do take a risk and you are afraid and obedient, it's in those moments that courage is born. When you're afraid and obedient, that's where courage takes place. But listen to me, you will never be courageous if you condemn yourself for being afraid. And I want to invite you to think about Nehemiah and think about yourself for a moment through God's eyes. I want to invite you to think about your humanness and think about your fear from a moment Uh, for a moment in the way that God sees it. And if you want to be able to do that, all you got to do is think about the way you treat your kids when they're afraid. If you remember, it was like, remember that like a week or so ago, that really big thunderstorm we had in the middle of the night? Everybody else like get woken up from that? It was like a week, I don't know when it was, a week or so. Um, We were, you know, asleep, everybody sound asleep in the middle of the night. We get this thunder that like shakes the windows and shakes the entire house. Like our house is like shaking. I wake up, Carrie wakes up, we shoot out of bed. The next thing I know, 
my six-year-old is like jumping on me, clinging, like runs from in her room and jumps on me, which is more scary to me than the storm because I'm disoriented and don't know what's going on. And she's, Daddy, Daddy, I'm scared. I'm, I'm scared, you know, and she's clinging to me and we had to let her sleep with us. And do you think for a moment that I shamed my daughter for being afraid? Do you think I said, like, how dare you that cosmic noises from the sky that shake our entire house would scare you? Like, there's, there's nothing about that that should scare you. Grow up. Don't be an idiot. Like, do you think, you think I shamed her for being afraid? No, like, I welcomed her into my presence, into my arms, into the safety of her father's love, which is what her heart was longing for. It's what the fear was trying to tell her. Like, her honesty about her fear inclined her to come to her father for help, which then moved my father heart to go towards her with all the protection and reassurance and compassion that she needed. Okay, with that story in your mind, I want to read this uh, quote to you from Jeff Schulte, who preached here a couple of weeks ago, and this is from his Voice of the Heart Bible study, which you can purchase right now on our app. And so here's what Schulte says. I'll put this on the screen for you. He says, if human parents respond to their frightened children with empathy, compassion, protection, reassurance, nurturance, and presence, imagine how the compassionate and unwavering heart of God responds to his children when they are honest about their fear. If we would not shame a child for running to the one person they trust the most, why do we shame ourselves when our fear leads us to cry out for the help and presence of our Heavenly Father? God's not mad at you because he's asked you to take some risks in a fallen world and you're afraid of that. He knows that. God's not mad at you for being afraid. He just wants you to run to him when you are, which is what your heart is trying to tell you. It's exactly what Nehemiah does. When you're afraid, you're supposed to run to God and let him prove that he's enough for you. Like that's that's what your heart's trying to tell you. That's what we see Nehemiah do. So Look at this. Rather than look, I want you to look back down at the text. We're going to jump in at verse 3. Rather than cowering away from God's call, Nehemiah stands. He faces his fear. And I want you to pay attention to what happens. Watch the movement here, okay, in the text. Back in verse 1 through 3, this is right after he's been questioned by the king. And he says, I'm terrified. Look at verse 3. I said to the king, let the king live forever. So he's kind of playing the game a little bit, buttering up the king, right? Um, you got to do that in this day and age. Let the king live forever. Why should not my face be sad when the city I love and the people I love, it's all in ruins and its gates have been destroyed by fire. And then the king said to me, what is it you're requesting? I love it. He's type A to the point, like get to the point, Nehemiah. What is it you want me to do for you? And look at what Nehemiah does in that moment at the end of verse four. So I stopped and prayed to the God of heaven. Did you see what just happened in this? Um, Watch the movement here, okay? Don't miss this. It it was Nehemiah's holy ambition that drove him before the king. Once he got there, he was afraid. And then where did his fear take him? Before the real king, right? It was in his fear that he, he was driven into the presence of God. Like, just like my daughter ran into my room and cried for help, Nehemiah in this moment runs to the Father with this shotgun prayer. 
And he says, oh, oh God, I'm out on a limb here. Like, I'm doing what you've called me to do. I'm, I'm like putting it all on the line. I'm standing before the king. This could go south real fast. Like, my neck's on the line. Oh, God, I desperately need you. That's, let me paraphrase that last, so I prayed to the God of heaven. That's what that says, okay? It was this holy ambition that took him to the king. It was his fear that drove him into the presence of God. You see that movement? Like, this is a human heart that works. This is, this is a human heart that works. Nehemiah wants us to see that when you acknowledge what it is you're afraid about, and all of us have fear, okay? When you acknowledge your fear, you open yourself up to your need for God. You open yourself up to be dependent upon Him. It's a reminder that you can't do life without Him. You need Him. If you're not afraid, what do you, you, don't, what do you need God for if you're never afraid? Like, you need Him. That's what your fear is trying to tell you. And it's trying to tell you that He is available and He's there for you because he's a good, good father. He doesn't, he doesn't shame you in the face of your fear just like you don't shame your kids in the face of theirs. And I think the reason, again, why many of us struggle with this is because many of us have been led to believe that fear is the opposite of faith. Can I talk about that for a second? We've been led to believe that fear is the opposite of faith. Um, and so um, for many of you, you think, well, if you're afraid, you're not trusting God. Let me rephrase that. I would say if you're anxious, you're not trusting God. So there's a big difference. There's a big cosmic gap between fear and anxiety. I would know I'm, the, I'm an expert at this, I promise you. There's a big difference between fear and anxiety. Fear is this thing that says, you know what? The world's a scary place and life is fragile. A lot could go wrong, and it might and probably will. I mean, you're going to die eventually. That's, that's fear, right? That's fear, Okay? You live long enough, you're going to get cancer. That's fear, okay? And it's real, and it should be. Anxiety says, I have to get control of all of that, and I have to manage and control my life in such a way so that I don't ever have to be afraid. Like, anxiety is this thing in you that says, I've got to figure it all out. Like, I've got to figure out what could possibly go wrong so that I can then prevent that, so that I can then play it safe and be nice and comfortable and in control of my life. That, 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 exhausting ball called anxiety that you carry in your gut, that's the opposite of faith. Because by definition, it says, I'm going to be in control, and I'm not, you can't trust God in that place. But fear is a place where you have to trust God. So it's, it's, not, it's not if you're afraid you're not trusting God. Listen to me carefully, because again, I'm choosing, my words, I'm choosing my words with great intentionality here, okay? It's not if you're afraid you're not trusting God. What's more true is if you're not willing to step out and face your fear, you're putting yourself in a position where you don't have to trust God. You're playing it safe. You're standing in your comfort zone where you've got control. But a willingness to follow God's leading and the dreams and the ambition He's put on your heart, even when it asks you to take a risk, the willingness to do that and to put yourself in a position where you're afraid puts yourself in a position where you have to trust God and cry out to him for help. So Nehemiah, right here in front of the king, he stops and he prays, Oh God, I'm sad. Oh God, I'm scared. And I desperately need you. And you know what I love about this? is just that Nehemiah lets us see his humanity. These are his memoirs. This is his journal entry, which he knew that the, the, the rest of the Israelites and us were going to read. 
You know what that means? He's writing this in the first person, so he could have taken the liberty to paint himself in any way that he wanted to, like some sort of Rambo-type figure, right? I'm going to go back home, I'm going to kick butt and take names, I'm not afraid of anything, I'm big and strong and tough, and I'm going I'm to walk into Jerusalem, and I'm going to start, I'm going to be the leader, and I'm going to do this, and I'm going to do that, and he says, no, I'm not Rambo. He says, I'm terrified, and I'm dependent upon God. And I think this has massive, if you want some application, I think this has massive implications for us because it helps us realize that Nehemiah and all these other biblical figures that you read about, uh, uh, they're not superheroes. They're just normal, ordinary, everyday scared people who need God. That's what they are. We we look at these figures like they're once-in-a-lifetime players, like Michael Jordan, and you think, like, there's no way. I could practice my guts out, and I could never be Jordan, right? Like, there's no way that I could do what Nehemiah did. There's no way that I could be a leader like Nehemiah. There's no way that I could go back to, you know, the, 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 the capital of Israel and, like, restore that place. There's no way God could use me like that. I could, there's no way I could be that. But if you pay attention, uh, you see, these people are not Jordans. They're us. They come from broken homes. They sin and they fail. They make huge mistakes. They struggle to trust God. And they're deeply afraid. And you know what? God uses them. God uses ordinary people who take ordinary steps of faith. And then he does extraordinary things. And gets all the glory and the credit for it. And all he's ultimately asking you to do is trust him and obey him. Easy to do, right? Well, Fear is going to keep you from doing that unless you're willing to face it. So I actually, you know, I want you to let Nehemiah's humanity be an encouragement to your heart this morning. Because for some of you, can I name something you're afraid of? For some of you, one of your biggest fears is that you fear that God could never use you. Like he could just never use you. You you, you think, why would God ever use me? I'm not smart enough. I don't know enough. I haven't been to seminary. Or maybe you're thinking, like, you don't know the mistakes I've made. You don't know like what's the demons I've got chasing me in my past. Like you, I'm damaged goods. You don't know like God could never use me. Listen, God's not looking at your resume or your history. He's looking at your heart. And you want to know what he's looking for? The good news is he's, he's looking for the one thing you have, which is your need for him. He's just looking to see if you know you need him. Like if you two are on the same page about this, right? If you understand how your heart works and that you were designed to be dependent upon him. He's just looking for you to admit that. So if you want want to be saved by God, have a relationship with God, be used by God, the good news is the only thing he requires of you is the one thing you have, which is your need. And that's what your fear is trying to tell you. That's what your fear is trying to tell you. Nehemiah gets this, guys. Like... He does not think he's Jordan. He's not going to march back there and put the Israelites on his back and carry them to six championships. Like that's not, he doesn't doesn't have that framework. That's why he stops and he prays. Oh God, if you're not in this, I'm done. Like if you don't do this, I have no hope. I cannot pull this off in my own power. I mean, look at what he's asking the king to do, okay? Let's just, you want to see how ambitious this dude is? Look at his holy ambition. Look at verse 5. He says, I said to the king, if it pleases the king, and if your servant has found favor in your sight, that you send me to Judah, to the city of my father's graves, that I may rebuild it. I'm going to rebuild this place. 
Verse 6, he's not done uh, yet. He says in verse 6, The king said to me, the queen next to him, How long will you be gone? How, I'm like, how much time do you need off? I look, just type A. Okay, tell me how much time you need off. Give, give me that. And, and, and so he says, It pleased the king when I had given him a time. You find out in chapter 5, Nehemiah asked for 12 years. So he asked for 12 years off, okay? And he's still not finished. Verse 7, I said to the king, If it pleases the king, let letters be given me to the governors of the province beyond the river so that I can get there safely. And then, oh, by the way, would you give a letter to Asaph who manages your forests? Like, notice it says it's the king's forest. He owns all this stuff, okay? So can you give a letter to Asaph who manages your forest so that he may give me timber? I'm not asking to purchase timber. I'm asking that you would give me timber. I'm asking that you would reverse your official political policy against Jerusalem and that you would, uh, I want to rebuild it. No, by the way, I want you to pay for it. I want you to give me all the wood I need to do this. Oh, and then he's still not done. He says, I'm going to need you to build me a house while I'm there because I'm going to be there for 12 years. Do you see that? Like, I want to rebuild the temple. I want to re- rebuild the walls. And I-, I need you to build me a house. This is the definition of ambition. Like, can you imagine going to your boss and saying, I need 12 years off to pursue my dreams and passions. And I need you to hold my job for me while I'm gone. And then I also need you to fund my travel expenses and make sure I get there safely. I also need you to pay for my whole work project. And by the way, I'm going to need a house on the job site. Like, this is ludicrous. And he's standing before this king that has a hair-trigger temper, who's bloodthirsty and glory-hungry, and would love nothing more on any given day than to like crucify or behead somebody just for the sheer twisted pleasure of it. So Nehemiah says, yeah, I'm going to go out on a limb here because this is the things I'm going to need to ask for. Ultimately, I'm asking God for this so that I can fulfill these passions and ambitions he's put on my heart. And then look at what he says at the end of verse 8. I Love this at the end of verse 8. The king granted me what I asked for. Why? Because the good hand of my God was upon me. Nehemiah, his holy ambition has brought him to a place where he is living a life he can't pull off in his own power. I don't know about you, but I long to be able to live in such a way where I can say, man... There is no, like, yes, I'm taking ordinary steps of faith. I'm going to acknowledge that. Yes, I'm afraid and I'm stepping out and I'm obeying and trusting God. But, like, what he's doing, there's no way that, like, that's, that's God. Like, he, I want to live my life in such a way where I can say, like, man, the only way this is possible is the good hand of God is upon me. And you want to know what one of our fears, like, healthy fears as pastors is, is that, um, for many Christians in our culture, what's it, it keeping you from living into the revival of holy ambition and keeping us from experiencing the revival of a holy ambition is that many of us are too afraid and we're living a life that we can pull off in our own power. Like, we're in comfort zones. And um, we're not willing to take risks. And so there's this lie um, of, of about the American dream that's infiltrated the American church um, that says that, man, if we just have enough money and enough stuff, functionally, you don't need God. You, you, don't, you don't need God. You don't need to be dependent upon him because money can do what prayer does and education and time and all that stuff can do what God does. And so it's the reason why the vast majority of people who call themselves Christians in the American church don't read their Bibles and they don't pray. That's not because we have a discipline problem. It's because we have a dependence problem. Like We just don't think we need it. We've built lives that we can pull off in our own power. And I am not immune to this. This this 
cancers all over my life. And I'm, I'm, I'm asking the Lord to remove it. And so what Nehemiah wants us to see is if we're going to experience the revival holy ambition brings, we have to be able to trust God enough to step out of our comfort zones and face our fears and to let go of the illusion of control. I mean, Nehemiah literally leaves the lap of luxury. Like, he's, got, he's, he's, he's achieved the Persian version of the American dream. Like, he's got this lavish life, the best food, drink, entertainment. He lives in this massive gated community in the mountains of Susa. And he leaves it all to go to this broken place with this broken people to pursue the ambition God's put on his heart. And so, to close, I just want to say three, three practical applications here. Um, three questions, I, uh, questions and things that I want to invite you to chew on this week to help us apply this, okay? Because where do we go from here? Um, the first thing is, quickly, I just want to invite you to ask the question, what people and place are you passionate about? It's really similar to the question Jared phrased last week. I think we're just going to have to keep asking it. What people and place are you passionate about? Look at verse 10. Nehemiah's passion was to seek, I would underline this phrase, seek the welfare of the people of Israel. We could preach a whole sermon on that. Um, His passion was to go and seek the welfare of the people of Israel. So it's not just the place of Jerusalem he cares about. He cares about the people there. And that's that's the difference between holy ambition and selfish ambition. Listen to this. By definition, selfish ambition is all about me. It's all about my preferences and my wants. Holy ambition is always directed toward other people, okay? It's always about uh, a specific place and, and a particular people that God has put on your heart. And as one level, this church was planted and we're here because God's given all of us, I hope, a holy ambition for this people in this place. Like we are here to seek the welfare of of the city of Paragold and Jonesboro and the surrounding region. Like that's why we're here. That's the holy ambition God has given us. The question for you is specifically what does that look like for you? Who are the specific people? Maybe it's people that's with your missional community, I hope. But other than that, like who's the specific people God's burdening you for? Like where is he birthing prayers and longings for people and for particular places within this place, okay? What's the people in the place he's put on your heart that you're passionate about? Question number two, what's holding you back from what God is calling you to do? It's the question Rich asked me, what are you so afraid of? Maybe it's a fear of losing control. Maybe it's a fear of sacrificing comfort. Maybe it's a fear of risking failure or rejection. I don't know. What is it that God's calling you to do? What is it that you're so afraid of? I want you to practice this week naming that. Like write it down and then share it with your fight club. Share it with your missional community. Here's what I'm afraid of. I'm afraid if I take this step of faith, this might happen. And then I just want you to acknowledge that and let it lead you to God. Let it lead you to prayer and dependence upon God. That's what your heart was made for. Last thing as far as application goes. I just want to encourage you that as you step into your fears and your passions... To please remember that ultimately we are not the hero of the story. Like, that takes some of the pressure off, right? Like, some of you are going, man, I've got to figure out right now what it is I'm passionate about. Like, I've got to figure out what's God, what's, what's the desires He put on me, what are my gifts and passions and my calling. Like, I've got to figure all that out. I've got to make sure I do it just right or I'm going to mess everything up. No, you don't. Like, 
all God is ultimately asking you to do is trust him and follow him, and he will lead the way because he's the true hero of the story. Okay, even the story of Nehemiah is not about Nehemiah's plans and dreams to go restore the people of Israel. It's ultimately a story about God's passion and plan to bring restoration to the world and to create a new Jerusalem, not just for the Israelites, but for us, for the nations. Because just like the Israelites, we too have rebelled against God. We too have tried to be independent of him and do life without him. And God has an eternal, holy ambition to, to, to magnify the glory and the beauty of his love by saving and restoring sinners into relationship with himself, just like you and me. And he does that through the personal work of his son, Jesus. And so Jesus is the true and better Nehemiah. Jesus comes into this broken world to seek our welfare. Like he, he left the lap of luxury in heaven, stepped into a world that is broken and unsafe, and moments before his death, you know what he confessed? He was afraid. Oh God, I'm on a limb here. Like I'm, I'm willing to, put, to pursue the ambition you've put in my heart. Like I'm willing to take this step, but if I do, it means I'm going to lose my life. My neck's on the line. So if there's any other way to do this, can we do this? And the father looks at him and says, no. The only way to do this is if you live the life they failed to live and you die the death they deserve to die. And to prove the glory of your love uh, for them, that's what I'm asking you to do. And so in trusting and obeying his father, Jesus moves forward and he trades the comforts of heaven for a cross where he bleeds and dies and gives his life for us. His holy ambition, his love for you, led him to face his fears and trust God. And he did it so that you and I can have hope and we can have life in him. You know, that's what we celebrate every week at this table. Do you know what this table's about? You come to this table with nothing, with not, no resume. You don't, you don't come to Jesus or come to this table and celebrate what he's done for you with a moral resume. Here's all the stuff I've done for you, God. Here's why I deserve to be in your kingdom and deserve to be used by you. No, like you come to this table or you come to Jesus with nothing but your need for him. And what we celebrate at this table is that his body was broken and his blood was shed so that you could have life. Um, and, and he could bring you into loving relationship with himself. We have um, a couple different stations here on each side of me in the front and in the back. We have a gluten-free option back here in the back to my left and your right, if that interests you. And so what I'm going to ask you to do right now is the, I'm going to ask the band to come forward. I'm going to ask that you would just stand and kind of keep your heart silent before the Lord. Resist the temptation to kind of check out in this moment. And I'm just going to ask you to, um, to pray with me. So would you close your eyes and let's pray. And if you're in this room um, and you would not call yourself a Christian, you would say that I have not surrendered my life in trust to Jesus. We are so glad you're here. Um, the pastors and the members want you to know this is a place where it is safe for you to belong before you believe and to process all of that. And we're happy to journey with you. And if that's you, we would just ask that you wouldn't take communion, um, but you would take Jesus today before you take communion. You would come to him and acknowledge your need before him and experience his presence and his love for you. And if you want to make that decision or you want to process that, man, Jared and Luke and myself, we're available. We would love to talk with you after the service. Let's pray together. Father, we, uh, we do just come into your presence right now asking for your spirit to move, um, asking for uh, your love to cast out fear that might want to keep us self-protecting that we would step into fear and let it lead us to you. 
I just pray, God, where um, the enemy wants to take our fear and kind of latch onto it and say, man, there's no way God could ever accept you. There's no way he's enough for you. He doesn't love you. He doesn't care. Um, he sees you and he's abandoned you. Like all that, all those are lies. So I pray that, that the gospel would be bigger than that right now, that the truth about Jesus would be so much louder in our hearts and that our fear would actually lead us into your loving presence. God, come now and work among us and work in us. Let that work spill out uh, from this place um, for the good of parable and for your glory. We pray in Jesus' name.